This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Food Research and Action Center, leading the way to ensure justice and equity are the center of the nation's efforts to end hunger in America. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Nia Ali, co-founder of the Landmark DC Eatery, Ben's Chili Bowl, and Food Tank co-founder and president, Danielle Neuenberg, joined the Washington Post to discuss fighting food insecurity from the community level to federal policy creation. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Mary Beth Albright, on-air food anchor at the Washington Post. And I am so pleased to welcome co-founder and owner of the legendary DC eatery, Ben's Chili Bowl, Virginia Ali, and co-founder and president of Food Tank, Danielle Nuremberg. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having having us. So, Ms. Ali, we're going to start with you. In 1958, you started what became a landmark DC business, Ben's Chili Bowl. And Ben's Chili Bowl was immediately a vibrant community center on U Street. We see a picture of it right there. Um, Mm -hmm. When that area was known nationally as Black Broadway, and you were there in 1968 with the unrest. Oh, look, there you are <laughs> when, you, when you started out at Ben Chilibol. Um, right. you were there, yeah, you were there in 1968 with the unrest after Dr. King was assassinated. And you're here now for the anti-racism protests. Um, what do you attribute your success to? Um, you know, we worked very hard to uh, home for our guests. We've always wanted folks to walk in that door and feel like they were coming to grandma's kitchen. And uh, the food's delicious. It's it's kind of a gathering place for people. It's, you know, where you meet and greet and uh, that's worked for us over the years. And you've been there since good through good trouble and other kinds of trouble. Um, how How have you sustained the business and kept it such a vibrant community center? We op- when we opened, of course, you know, we were, this still was a segregated city. Uh, African-Americans weren't going downtown for dinner or for movies or that kind of thing. But as you said, we had black, into our black um, U Street, we called it um, Black Broadway. So we had three state-of-the-art theaters along that corridor. And um, people there from all walks of life, you know, our own doctors, lawyers, professional people, Howard University is in walking distance. So we had this strong community, number one, that um, definitely looked forward to our new establishment in 1958. It was all colorful and bright and and uh, welcoming, and we provided the good food. And then we were able to go through the uh, civil rights movement with all that was happening during that time. And as you said, the 1968 uprising when Dr. King's life was taken. That was very difficult. It was a time when um, the street was literally destroyed. There were three nights of curfew. We were the only place that was allowed to remain open during those three nights of curfew. That was really frightening. But I'm uh, sure you're so much a part of that community. Um, And a lot of times that's a way to, to see food insecurity Um, on the front lines. I mean, you either see businesses shuttering around you or, um, you know, problems with the food system. What are you seeing now in terms of food insecurity in in that area? 
Well, the area has changed drastically. It's now a high-end area. It's a very expensive community now because after the riots and, and that in 1968, the area began to go downhill, and it did for quite for 20 years. Uh, but now it's a thriving community. Uh, and we don't have, you know, the kind of things that we had to support so strongly early on. We now have to go past our immediate community, I think. Uh, but we do all we can, and we do see people that are having pro problems getting food. It's just uh, it's devastating to see that at this point in time. But that's yeah. a great deal that has to do with the pandemic, uh, because so many businesses are not able to, to uh, stay open. So many businesses are not able to survive. And we're doing our very best. We've had to decrease our hours, decrease our staff, and all of that, which is very different. And we had more than one store. We have a place at Nats Park. Well, that uh, is not even doing anything because there are no fans in the stadium. And yeah, and that's, I'm sorry. Team, yeah. And, and that brings uh, us to sort of the national concern of it. And Danny, you're the president of a food think tank and you have deep experience in food and food policy nationally. Um, what do you see when you're hearing within the context of Virginia's experience, what she's seeing on the ground, what, what are you, what are some of the um, policy uh, solutions we can develop nationally or locally? Yeah, and before I begin, it's such an honor to share the stage with you both, especially Ms. Ali, who's done so much. She's a national treasure. I think, you know, what, what, what Ben Tlebel is feeling, seeing is really happening across this country. You know, we're seeing community-based restaurants that are centers of, of activism and growth you know, they're, they're having to shutter their doors and, and we need more support. It's, you know, it, these are restaurateurs who've worked really hard to stay in business. And, and I think, you know, the Restaurants Act of 2020, which was, uh, you know, endorsed by the uh, Independent Restaurant uh, Coalition and, and others could be really a step forward in, in revitalizing um, those restaurants, keeping them in business, keeping food workers in business. This is a really hard time. Those lines that that Luis and Soledad and, and Sarah were talking about for uh, food banks are filled with a lot of food workers who have lost their jobs during this pandemic. So it is, you know, it's not just the responsibility of, of nonprofits and community members to, you know, make sure that those folks are fed and that they can find jobs now and post-pandemic, but it's really the job of the federal government and we need some them to step up and, and, and take some action here. Well, this is interesting, Danny, because you, uh, you started Food Tank almost a decade ago. And so you've seen um, a lot of the programs that the federal government have done, has done, and also internationally. Can you talk to some of the things that you've seen advocates doing um, that are working? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what's happening right now is we're seeing so much action at, at the local level, right, that could triple, trickle up and help at the federal level. You're seeing, um, you know, uh, nonprofits like Wholesome Wave, you know, uh, make it easier for people to use their SNAP benefits, you know, using mobile devices or even ordering food. Those are things that the federal government should really latch onto because they work. They're effective, you know. Uh, they they help uh, those community members spend money in their own communities and keep other businesses in business and keep other people working. And and I think it's those kinds of uh, you know policies and, and advocacy roles that really need to to be built up. 
And Ms. Ali, um, a lot of people talk about how just general economic security is is a way to defeat um, food insecurity. Of course, you've you've been at the same, been running the same business since 1958, and as you discussed through the civil rights movement and now um, through the anti-racism movements that we're going through today, can you give us some perspective on that period of time versus this period of time? Well, that period of time, um, first of all, we didn't have to deal with people being ill because of this pandemic. So that makes this one very unusual and very different from anything else we've had to deal with. But back in those days, you know, in the, we did not have this kind of unemployment. Uh, we didn't have uh, race. Well, we did have the racism. We fought for it in the 60s, and we're still doing fighting for the same systemic change for now. That's not happening. But... I think that we really just have to realize that uh, the federal government has to do a great deal more, and we've, we've got to up the education for all people. We've got to get the wage um, benefits different for, than they are now. We've got to find jobs and employment for people. And, and as I said, I think it's a role of the federal government to do a great deal. We in, we in small businesses like Ben's Chili Bowl have always donated food to the needy and still do to this day. Um, but it's, 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 it's something where we've all got to come together and work together. But right now, I think it's much worse than it's ever been. In my 87 years, I'm, feeling, I'm seeing it more difficult than I've ever seen it before. The challenges are much larger. Um, well, we have a couple of questions from the audience. Um, one is from Aisha Green from Virginia, and this is um, for you, Ms. Ali. Um, do you think you could start Ben's Chili Bowl today? And what would be different? And how has the community around you changed? And I would add to that, and specifically, we've heard so much um, advocacy about Black-owned businesses. And can you speak to it also in terms of, of that? I think the, a chili bowl would definitely be successful if it started, but it's got to wait for this pandemic to end. I believe that's the unfortunate part. Um, it's you know it's 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 not easy to get the funding as it. I mean, back in the day, it was literally impossible. We were the franchise back there in the '60s that we had the funds to do so. Um, today, I don't think it's much easier, particularly for African Americans, to do that. And that, again, goes the role of the federal government. Um, um, but I believe that given the right location and the right time after this pandemic is over, that the Chili Bowl would certainly do beautifully. And Danny, this is one for you. Um, Terrence Amerson from Wisconsin asks, how can city dwellers without easy and safe access to urban gardens help reduce dependence on big agriculture and big box shopping for groceries? I mean, the, I, I think that's such a good question. One we've all been thinking about it. It's supporting your local CSAs. You know, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I have a great CSA that serves many parts of the city. Um, there are so many other options. It's, you know, community gardens. It's growing what you can on your windowsill or your balcony. But it's really, you know, I, I think a lot of onus is, is uh, placed on us as eaters to really find those resources. Food tank, you know, you can visit and, and find many of them. 
but it, it's really learning what's happening in your own community, literally in your own backyard with, you know, urban farms and gardens that are, uh, you know, uh, have been lifesavers during this time, right? When, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when supply chains were disrupted. So, you know, I think as, as the longer this pandemic goes on, you know, the more uh, we'll become dependent on those, those local and regional sources of food uh, so that we can support farmers who've lost business. We can support, you know, uh, food workers who are obviously losing business. It's really up to us as advocates to take the lead on that. Well, is that a national question? Is that a local question? I mean, we look at when you're talking about urban agriculture centers, that's obviously something that people have been working towards, or not obviously, but it's something that people have been working towards for a while. Um, is there something the federal government can do to encourage communities and local communities to help businesses such as Ben's Chili Bowl or to partner and create Absolutely. an urban agriculture system? Absolutely. And I think this speaks to the need for federal policy that just doesn't address a crisis or address, you know, one part of the system. You know, a few years ago, uh, food leaders like Michael Pollan and Mark Bittman and Ricardo Salvador called for a national food policy in this country, not just a farm bill, not just, you know, uh, legislation that, that picks up, you know, pieces of the food system or the agriculture system and, and tries to stitch them together, but a real comprehensive policy. And, you know, we haven't seen farm bills that support local agriculture that much over the last, you know, uh, a few decades. So, you know, maybe that's one part of it, but we need comprehensive legislation that really helps both eaters and farmers and really produces, you know, uh, healthy, nourishing food for us all that's healthy, accessible, affordable, that, you know, it, it, it's not so hard to get. So many people are struggling right now to get fresh, healthy produce into their lives because of the pandemic and because of the high cost of these things. If we can reduce those costs, if we can go back to this idea that was brought up before, the idea of a living wage, imagine that in this country, you know, paying food workers and farm workers what they're worth, respecting them. This is a whole set of things that's really needed to improve the system. Well, it sounds like both of you are speaking to points of financial empowerment um, within communities uh, to help with food insecurity. Um, and this is a question for both of you. How do you think that women entrepreneurs um, and just women in the food section generally, in the food sector generally, um, are drivers of prosperity, especially during this time and especially within communities and underserved communities? Well, I think that women can certainly do that very effectively. I think they need the support of uh, the community. And uh, we have so many strong women leaders today. I don't think that's a problem at all. Uh, and someone did ask a moment ago about the change on you, on, on my community. It's a totally new community. It's now a gentrified community. But getting back to the women, you know, it's given the support Women can make this work. They've learned how to do it effectively. Uh, they're strong. They're mothers, of course, and that takes a great deal of um, sacrifice when you're going to have to go to work and have your children there. But women can do that, and the federal government and the communities give their support to women, and I'm sure that would work just fine. Danny, I think. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that women have really been leading a lot of the work that's done around the food system, especially right now. 
and and they've done it with challenges that that men don't often face. You know, uh, it's easier for male entrepreneurs in the food system to get funding. That's that's you know been the case for a very long time. And I, I think, you know, making sure, as Virginia said, that women have the investment that they need, that they have the resources that they need to do their jobs well in improving the food system is key. But we have to recognize their role. We have to encourage it and, and, and really support it. Yeah. I mean, do you think that things like WIC, I mean, th things that we've, that we've been discussing for the past half hour, do you think that things like that, um, benefits will uh, play into that, that the, the community building aspect and the financial empowerment? A absolutely. Without those things being strengthened, whether it's WIC or SNAP or any of these other federal assistance programs that are constantly in jeopardy, those are the things that will help women, uh, you know, not only perform their role as mothers, but also be, you know, the, the business leaders that we need so desperately right now, the entrepreneurs who can make real innovation in this space and, and do things that, you know, we can't even dream of right now, but that will, you know, make the food system safer and healthier for everyone. Danny, are you seeing people who have, you know, you said things that we can't even dream of right now. I mean, are you seeing somebody out there who is a dreamer working in financial and community empowerment right now that you see as a, as a success story? I mean, I think Karen Karp and the work that she's done with her firm in New York to really raise um, and, and shine a spotlight on how women in, in, in the entrepreneurial uh, world are underinvested in has been a, you know, a key person in this role, uh, you know, to, to really strengthen the role of women. I, I think there are so many others that, that go unnamed and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's BIPOC, uh, women entrepreneurs in these communities are continuing to feed them, you know, people like Virginia who are continuing to donate food. I'm uh, trying. I, I think those are the real leaders. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, this is the last question and it's a big one, but right now we have to ask the big questions, which is um, how do we fight food insecurity? Um, and how do we make the food system a little more just in this country? And how do we promote a, a racially uh, just food system right now? I guess we start with voting. <laughs> that might help if we get the right people in, in office and we have to get, uh, make sure that our representatives from every state, uh, those representatives that will do what they need to do to uh, make our country more just. You know, we've got to pay the farmers, as you said, properly. We've got to be able to uh, invest in our entrepreneurs, particularly women. and. Um, we can, we can, we just simply have to do that. We, we can make it. I think we can, but it's frightening for me at this point in time because of the pandemic. But this can't last forever. We can get through this, I think, together. And when we do that, uh, we will start with trying to support each other and get the investment that we need for entrepreneurs and for farmers, and just make this work and. We've got to get the food secure for people. There are so many people suffering today, so many. Danny, what do you think uh, of that? Um, about the, yeah. especially consumer dollars are important for black owned businesses, but what on the policy level are you seeing? 
I mean, I, I think I agree with Virginia that we have to really hold our, our policymakers and our legislators accountable. We had to, we have to really advocate this year more than any other year because of the pandemic, because of the, the really inspirational uprisings around the murders of so many uh, 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 black folks this year. We really need to use those as a, as a catalyst for making change. It's up to us. To, to make that change. We really need to advocate. We have to vote like the lives of farm workers and food workers and entrepreneurs really depend on it. And I, and I think it's, you know, investigating, you know, uh, what your, your local state and, and, and national representatives who, you know, vote for you in Congress are doing and, and making sure that they're voting for the, the food system that you believe in. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. It's a big subject, and we've just sort of scratched the surface here. Um, but Virginia Ali, Danley Nirenberg, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.